Let us pray. Father, we abandon ourselves into your hands. Do with us what you will. Whatever you may do, we thank you. We are ready for all. We accept all. Let only your will be done in us and in all your creatures. We wish no more than this, O Lord. Into your hands we commend our souls. We offer them to you with all the love of our hearts. For we love you, Lord, and so need to give ourselves, to surrender ourselves into your hands without reserve and with boundless confidence. For you are our Father. Amen. You can be seated. So how many of you have ever been to a parish mission before? I know I think you're famous in Buffalo for having parish missions. In fact, I was here visiting my sister a few years ago, and I happened to be there on the weekend of a parish mission. So I even got to go to a parish mission in um, St. John's, and I was really happy. And after I um, listened to the Mercy Fathers speak to your parish about healing, and uh, they gave a, a great mission. It was last year, I believe. I asked Father Pete, I said, would you ever want an Easter mission? And I was really happy when he said, come up and do it. And so here I am in Buffalo. Um, it's a little bit like home to me. It's my sister Karen and her husband Mike's hometown. They raised seven kids here, and I don't know how many grandkids they're raising. So I always love to come to Buffalo, and I feel a little bit at home here in your parish as well. And Father Pete is a wonderful priest that I feel inspired by when I celebrate Mass with him. <laughs> okay, you can have it. So parish missions are an interesting concept, and I really only started doing parish missions about three years ago. I was a pastor in a parish for 12 years, and I had been a pastor in Greeley, Colorado for 10 years before that. So I had been a pastor, and being a pastor leads to all kinds of interesting and wonderful work in ministry for the Lord. But doing a parish mission and coming to a particular community and having a rather intense experience with the community for two or three days was something I never really imagined I would be doing. I had been the pastor of a parish in North Glen called Immaculate Heart of Mary. It was a parish of 6,000 families. In really, in many ways, it was the, I was on top of my game. It was the most ex incredible experience of my life. I loved being the pastor of a huge parish. I sometimes envied Father Pete, but really it was stimulating to be the pastor of a large parish, and I was successful at it. I was doing well. And then one day, the bishop called me. I had about six months left in that parish before my assignment was up, and he asked me, if I would like to do a new ministry, and I said, well, besides being a parish priest, and he said, yes, I want you to go and work with Father Benedict Rochelle in the South Bronx working with the homeless. I said, no, I don't want to. <laughs> and he said, I don't think I'm giving you a choice here. And suddenly I came face to face with one of those promises I made when I was an ordained man. I said, I promise to you and to your successors, obedience. So I want to begin our parish mission tonight speaking a little bit about obedience. And the reason I want to do that is twofold. It gives me an opportunity to introduce your, you to myself, but it also is really critical, in my opinion, when we begin to talk about grace. 
And as you know from my sermon yesterday, I'm going to be speaking about grace primarily in the next three nights. And obedience is, in my opinion, essential to grace. And we cannot understand grace and what grace is, or mercy, or faith, without obedience. And I discovered why when the bishop said, I want you to move to the South Bronx and work with the homeless. It was a little bit like getting thrown out of the Garden of Eden. Now, I want to share this scripture with you so that I can put this in context and we can begin our mission in this context. This is from the book of Genesis. It's the second story of creation. Thus the heavens and the earth and all their array were completed. Since on the seventh day God was finished with the work he had been doing, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had undertaken. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work he had done in creation. Such is the story of the heavens and the earth and their creation. At the time when the Lord made the earth and the heavens, while as yet there was no field shrub on earth and no grass of the field had sprouted, for the Lord God had sent no rain upon the earth and there was no man to till the soil, but a stream was welling up out of the earth and was watering the surface of the ground. And so the Lord God formed man out of the clay of the ground and blew into his nostrils the breath of life. And so man became a living being. I share that with you because, as you will remember now, if you look back on your Bible studies, what happened after we were created in the Garden of Eden? God told us, I'm going to put you in this beautiful place. It looks a lot like Buffalo, or maybe Story. Sorry. Um, it's the perfect place. You can have anything you want. There are all the food you could imagine. There are all the animals you could imagine. Everything is perfect in this place. And I want you to enjoy it. And I want you to use it all for your own well-being. The only thing I don't want you to do is eat that apple. Now, what did we do? We had everything we could possibly imagine. We had paradise, everything our hearts desired. And all he said was, don't eat the apple. Eat the grapefruit, eat the lemons, eat all the other fruit of the orchard, but just don't eat that one apple. Please don't eat that one apple. And the minute we were told we could not eat that apple, we wanted that apple, didn't we? And that is, in my opinion, the moment we removed ourselves from grace. Like I told you yesterday in my sermon, grace is to us as water is to a fish. Typically, we are swimming in grace. And so it's very hard to talk about what is it? How does it feel? What does it do for us? It's life itself. And yet, when we ate that apple, we disobeyed. We committed the one sin that I believe leads to all sin. And that is we asserted our will over God's will. 
And in our human experience, I think we do that all the time. I think we do it when we pray. In fact, I suspect the evidence of our disobedience is really ingrained in how we pray. And I want to speak about this just for a moment because so often our prayer reveals for us whether or not we really understand grace. Because I suspect that most of us, when we need prayer, when we desire prayer, it's because something's going wrong in our life. When life isn't easy, when we are diagnosed with cancer, when we are sent to work in the South Bronx, when we are told by someone we can't eat that apple, then we approach God and we say to God, Lord, please, let me eat that apple. I'm hungry. Lord, please, don't send me to the South Bronx. I'm enjoying my ministry. Lord, why did you give me cancer? I have a long life left. And we go on and on and on in our prayer, requesting from God that he does what we want him to do. There was a story about a young man who approached his priest one day, and he said, you know, Father, I've heard many, many stories about the medieval ages. And back in the medieval ages, there were so many miracles. The hosts were bleeding, people were healed. There were all kinds of amazing things happening that really inspired people. There were miracles all around. Why is it that that happened in the 13th century, but it no longer happens? And the priest looked at him and he said, because in, this, in the 13th century, people were absolutely obsessed about doing the will of God. And when they did the will of God, they saw miracles. And in the 20th century, we are obsessed about having God do our will. And when we ask God to do our will, miracles disappear. Does that make sense? In our prayer, most of the time what we're asking for is what we want. Lord, give us this. Lord, do this. Lord, take care of that. Lord, fix this person or that person. Lord, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Lord, this, Lord, that. And if you really stop and think about it, the way we pray is, Lord, I could do your job a lot better than you're doing your job. If you would just listen to me, the world would be a far better place. Donald Trump would say exactly what we want him to say. Congress would do exactly what we wanted them to do. The unborn would be protected in the womb. If only, Lord, you would do our will and take care of all these problems. And that's not how he works, is it? Because what he's asking us and what I believe his will is, is for us to do his will, to live our lives in absolute obedience to his will, to enjoy the fruits of our life and the world around us and not eat the apple. But we don't do it. In our freedom, which is the greatest gift God gave us, we assert our own will. And so what happens? I said a moment ago, when we assert our own will over God's will, we experience the death of grace in our life. We are tossed out of the Garden of Eden 
We discover our nakedness. We live in shame and we bring our children into the world in pain. But it gets worse. The moment we ate that one stupid apple, I wish he had never created that apple, death came into the world. And we no longer could enjoy eternal life. We had to go through the transition of old age. We had to experience suffering from the moment of our birth to the moment of our death. And we had to experience the terrible grief and sadness that comes with death. The death of grace is death for all of us. And I really believe that that happened because we were searching for our own will and not the will of God. So, because of that, I also believe this. It's God's will that we know his grace. It's God's will that we come back into his grace. It's God's will that, as the Catechism says, we experience the divine influence of God on our heart. That's how the Catechism defines grace. A divine influence on our heart. And that divine influence on our heart can be described as the empty tomb of Easter, the joy of the resurrection, the return to the Garden of Eden, and the conquering of death itself. Wouldn't that be a great world to live in? To experience grace at that level. You know, I, I imagine this sometimes. I've lost a nephew who was just a little boy. And I often go to his grave and I sit there and I think to myself at his grave, how would I feel if Riley walked around from behind a tree and said, surprise, I'm back? The joy would be inexpressible. Anyone who has lost a parent or a child or a grandparent or a loved one, a friend, has to take a moment and imagine, how would I feel if that person returned? Because that moment is the moment of divine grace. So it's pretty exciting, isn't it? That's why I love to talk about grace, because I believe that when we return to grace and we allow God to have a divine influence on our heart, the joy that we experience will be inexpressible. Now, in the next couple of days, I'm going to talk about a few other things. Getting back to grace is not as easy as it sounds. We need a few things to help us, the tools that God has provided for us through the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And we need each other. And I believe that's why he instituted the church. And I'll tie all that together. But the whole purpose of it, the church, the advocate, the spirit, and the Eucharist, is so that we can return to the Garden of Eden, so that we can conquer death, so that we can have that divine influence on the heart, which we call grace. And it is amazing. It is amazing. Now, I started doing parish missions, as I said, when I was thrown out of the Garden of Eden, which was my beautiful parish that I had done so brilliantly and had been so successful at. I went to the Bronx, and look at me. I'm a lily white boy from Colorado. 
That's not a lot different than being a lily white person from Buffalo, Wyoming. I lived in a very, very um, protected environment in so many ways. I had never met a meth addict. Maybe I had, I just didn't know. I had worked very seldom with homeless people. I had only met a few homeless people on the street and they irritated me. I had not been around Cubans, Puerto Ricans, Africans, people of different races, ways of life. I had met very few Muslims. I had not been with cocaine addicts and prostitutes and people who lived on the street. And I walked into that environment and I can tell you that it really felt like I had left the Garden of Eden. It was the most hostile and terrifying experience of my life. And I can remember one night I called my sister Karen and I was in tears and I said, I can't stand it here. I said, I don't think I can live in the shelter with the homeless in the South Bronx of New York City. Everything was foreign to me. Everything was hostile in my environment. And as I was on the phone, I said, oh my gosh, I just saw a huge rat run across the courtyard. So you can kind of get the sense of what I was experiencing. That was like being a fish thrown out of the aquarium. I was about ready to die from that experience. I went down to dinner the second or third night I was in the shelter. I hadn't eaten yet. I was getting hungry, but I didn't want to eat with a bunch of homeless guys. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is because they smell terrible. And secondly, I didn't know where the food came from and I wasn't sure I wanted to eat it. And I was afraid for my own well-being. And I walked down in the dining room and to my shame and my horror, I looked at these men, it was a men's shelter by the way, and I thought to myself, oh my God, I cannot talk to them, I don't wanna be with them, there's nothing I respect about them, why are they homeless, shame on them, they must have done something wrong, and I sat there in judgment and sin, and I didn't feel any better. It took me three weeks, and then one day I was speaking to Father Benedict Rochelle, and I said, Father Benedict, I can't stand this. I don't know why the bishop sent me here. I was the pastor of a huge parish. I was the, in charge of everything. Everybody was doing my bidding, my desires, and they cleaned the poinsettias out of the church for me. And now I'm cleaning the poinsettias out of the church, chasing rats and eating with people that smell terrible. I go, I don't think this is what God wants for me. And you know what he said to me? He says, you're here, aren't you? And I said, um, yeah. And he says, I suspect it's because God got you here. And he said, sometimes he needs to knock us off our horses to get us where he wants us to go. And we all know that story, don't we, of St. Paul. And he said, in order to survive here, you need to look for God's grace in this experience. That challenged me at the deepest level because I didn't know what it meant. All I knew, even as a priest of 30 years, was that grace was somehow amazing. We talk about it a lot. Protestants talk about it way more than we do. But I had no idea what it was. I thought, what is it? I don't even know what grace is. How am I supposed to look for it? Excuse me a minute. I'm going to get a, my water over there. I left it over there Sunday. <laughs> Thank you.
It makes me nervous to have my brother-in-law here. <laughs> Look for the grace, Mike. Okay, so when you're presented with those kind of moments, you know, it's a little bit like what death presents to us. We are put in a place where we either sink or swim, and we have to survive. So I began to think to myself, what is grace? And I'm going to ask you that question tonight. What is it? As we heard in the catechism, it says grace is a divine influence on the heart. Grace is a return to the Garden of Eden. Grace is resurrection. But what is it? You know, we have a tendency as Catholics sometimes to do that. We throw out a lot of words, don't we? We talk about mercy, we talk about faith, we talk about grace, and we never really talk about what they are. We just know that they're words. And I think sometimes it's hard to go deeper. So I did what I hope all of you do. I got my catechism out. And I thought, what does the church teach us that grace is? And the first thing the church teaches us is that there are three types of grace. So I thought, okay, well, that's a good start. And I'm going to share that with you tonight. Do you all remember from your catechism what the three types of grace are? Sanctifying grace, actual grace, and sacramental grace. Now, by the end of tonight, I hope you'll at least know a little bit about all of those things. Okay. I started out with sanctifying grace. And I thought, what is it? I read about it, I studied it, I prayed about it, and I came to the conclusion that sanctifying grace is what I read from the um, book of Genesis tonight. It's the breath of God in each human being. God breathed his very life into us. That's amazing. That's stunning when you stop and think about it. We are not apes. Our bodies may have evolved. We are not, though, because God breathed his life into us. Sanctifying grace is the experience of being created in the image and likeness of God and carrying the very breath of God in our being. We are created by the breath of God. And because God breathed his life into us, Here's the logical conclusion you have to make. We're amazing. Every human being is created with the breath of God. So if you want to begin to experience what grace is, you have to look at each other. And you have to begin to recognize that in every person in your life, in this church, in this community, that you encounter on the life's journey is the breath of God a divine influence on your heart. There's a beautiful story about a, another boy who was walking with his master, his teacher, a wonderful and holy man. And they were walking along, and the master was testing his student. And he said, son, how do you know when night is over and morning has begun? Well, the boy walked along for a while, and he said, master, you know when night is over and morning has begun, when you can look in the distance and on a distant hill, you can see two animals, and you can tell which is a horse and which is a cow. And his master smiled and said, that's not the answer. So they continued to walk. And he asked him again, how do you tell when night is over and morning has begun? And so the boy leaned down, and he picked up two leaves. 
And he said, Master, you can tell when night is over and morning has begun. When you can look at these two leaves and you can see them so clearly, you can tell which is an oak and which is a maple. And his master smiled and said, that is not the answer. Well, the boy was perturbed at this, and they walked a while again. And then finally the boy said, Master, how then can you tell when night is over and morning has begun? And the master said to the student, when you look at the person next to you and you see a friend. My night in the shelter began to end when I sat with stinky men who were homeless and I saw a friend. Because what I began to experience in that homeless shelter was the sanctifying grace of every human being. Do you know why men that live in shelters are meth addicts? Because they've had terrible lives. Because they've had no families. They've been abandoned by mother, father, brothers, and sisters. You know how you begin to feel when you listen to those stories that lead to addiction? that lead to that kind of alienation from the human family? As I began to listen to the stories, <coughs> I began to hear things that made my heart tremble. I began to hear about men who had walked a journey that was so far different than mine and so much more painful than mine that I felt embarrassed at how I had lived in the Garden of Eden for so many years. I heard stories that I had never heard before. I saw tears in grown men who had no home, no family, no job, no income, no hope that made me cry. And I began to make friends. And I want to just tell you about one of these friends tonight in our, in our mission because he stands in my mind as a great example of grace, sanctifying grace. His name is Amin. Amin is from Tehran, Iran. He was a Muslim his entire life. Amin came, came to the shelter on a really cold, rainy night in the South Bronx in New York, and it was really cold, and we didn't have any open beds. He was very polite, could speak just very little English, but was very grateful that I had at least said hello to him. I asked him to come back every night, and I said, as soon as we have an empty bed, I'll give it to you. And he finally got a bed, and he came in, and I sat with him at dinner. And this was about three or four weeks after I'd started in the shelter. And I was curious about him. When he told me that he was a Muslim from Iran, I reacted like so many people probably would react in today's world, especially in America. I was afraid of him. I was afraid that he could be a terrorist in hiding at the shelter. And I went through all those things in my mind. And then I asked him, and I said, how come you didn't go back to Tehran? And again, I was a little judgmental because I thought, we should have closed our borders. Why did we ever let you in? And he told me a story that I just didn't think was real. He said, well, you know, I went to school in Germany. And he said, I had become a Christian in Tehran just before I left for college in Germany. And he said, while I was studying in Germany, a Muslim group in Tehran killed all my friends that were Christian. And he said, my mother didn't know I was a Christian and my brother didn't know I was a Christian. My father had died and he said, I didn't want to endanger them, so I didn't come back. And then he said, and then my brother called me and said they were looking for me. And he goes, I couldn't extend my visa because it would have 
let them know where I was. I had no choice. And he said, I came to America because I knew in New York City I could find a job and I could survive. And I looked at him and I said, and how did you do that? And he said, well, I didn't speak a word of English. I walked the streets of Manhattan for a year and I stayed in shelters for an entire year without being able to speak our language. This young man survived on the streets of New York and he finally got a job. And as I became, became friends with Amin, we had so much fun. I saw the city of New York like I could never have seen it before because he had to leave the shelter in the morning and couldn't come back until seven at night. So I thought, why not hang out with him in New York? So I hung out in the streets of New York because I just didn't want to sit in the shelter by myself with a homeless guy and I saw the city and it was all grace. It was all grace. And I thought to myself so many times while I was wandering around in New York, how many times have I failed to pay attention to a person next to me and missed this experience of sanctifying grace? If we really believe that the breath of life is in every person, holy mackerel would we change the way we treat each other? If we really believed that every single person we encounter has the potential to bring grace into our life, a divine influence on our heart, I suspect we would have a curiosity about each other that would be profoundly enlightening. That we would never leave Mass early. I love it when Father Pete does that. Because every time we left Mass early, we would be afraid that we would miss a moment of grace with one of the people we were praying with. The sign of peace should be a moment of encounter with one another that should be open to mystery and absolutely phenomenal. But how many times do we do it with such hesitation because maybe the person sitting next to us isn't dressed quite right or even worse has bad breath or even worse you've heard about them in the rumor mill and shame on them for the way they're living. You know, I always think one of the um, tragic stories of the Christian church is the story of Mahatma Gandhi. Do you know Mahatma Gandhi, the great Indian leader from India? He was going to become a Christian. He wanted to be a Christian. He wanted to be a Catholic, actually. He went into a Catholic church. They would not allow him to sit in the pews towards the front because he was a Hindu and not of the same level in, in the, their eyes. They do, you know, the Hindus have a different category for different people. And so they made him sit against the back wall in the back of the church. And he said, how can I become a religion that doesn't practice what they teach? And you know why that's so important? Because we carry within us sanctifying grace. We are holy people. Now, we don't always act holy, do we? And that is another tragedy because we don't necessarily believe that we carry within ourselves sanctifying grace. And so what we do is we eat the stupid apple 
because we're convinced that something else is going to make us happier than knowing that we carry within our own hearts the very breath of God. When we can look in the mirror and say to ourselves, oh my gosh, I am the vessel of the very breath of God. I suspect we would be terrified by our sin. We would reconcile ourselves quickly. We would act a whole lot different. And we would be holier people. Not by any virtue from ourselves, not by any great talent that we carry, but just by the fact that we recognize that we carry within ourselves the breath of God, sanctifying grace, that we are vessels of grace. And I think when we can begin to see ourselves that way, we begin to see one another that way, and we change the way we act towards one another. So you have to begin by seeing in yourself a friend and in the person sitting next to you, a friend. And when we can begin to do that, we begin to know that night is over and day has begun. I really feel sad sometimes when I meet people who have terrible self-esteem. And this is a really tricky issue in today's world because we also live with an epidemic of narcissism. Narcissism is a twisted self-love that says I can meet all my own needs I can make myself happy because I'm the best there ever was. I'm better than everybody else. And I can do it because of my skill and my talent and my abilities. And I'm in love with that. That's narcissism. It's an epidemic in our young people. That's why they don't go to church. Because they're convinced that they don't need God, that they're so amazing, they don't need anybody and they don't need mom and dad, and they don't need grandma and grandpa, and they don't need their brothers and sisters because they have everything they need all in themselves. That is an enemy of grace. That's narcissism. But sanctifying grace tells a human being that I have within me the very breath of God. My potential is immeasurable. I can accomplish whatever I want to accomplish. I can do amazing things as long as I allow the breath of God to drive my actions and behavior and my words. As long as it's God working within me, I will never become a narcissist, but I will become absolutely captivated by the breath of God within me. It's the breath of God that gives us our abilities and our talents and our beauty as human beings. And when we can recognize that in ourselves, it's not that hard to see it in each other. And I began to see that in some of my homeless men. Against all odds, they somehow were able to recognize their absolute dependence on God. And in that absolute dependence on God, they revealed for me sanctifying grace. Does that make sense? The breath of God within. Um, I have to tell you another story. And Father Pete, please don't tell the bishop about this, okay? Because I could get in big trouble for this one. <laughs> Wait, you haven't heard the story yet. You got to hear the story first. So I told you already, I'm a lily white boy from Colorado, and I lived a rather protected, sheltered life because I went to the seminary at a young age. In the Bronx, I began to recognize in the homeless guys some fascinating characters, men that struggled with great sin, great alienation from God, and great pain. 
but were struggling to really rebuild their lives. I did not expect to have to minister as a priest to prostitutes. And I met my very first prostitute. Mom, don't tell anybody. Um, her name was Hazel. Now, don't be embarrassed about this because Hazel um, told me I could talk about her because I found Hazel to be one of the most fascinating human beings I've ever met in my whole life. And because she was a prostitute, again, I had to encounter all my judgment, all my, um, all my prejudice, all the things that I fight against, you know, sexual immorality and on and on and on. But I had already gotten past the point where I was recognizing that every individual brings sanctifying grace into our lives. And so I thought, in spite of her lifestyle, there must be something redeemable about Hazel because God's breath is within her. And I began to ask her questions. And she looked at me after the first time I met her and she goes, you're not gonna try to convert me, are you? I said, well, I'd really like to. <laughs> And she goes, you know what? She said, you better take me as I am because I'm not changing my lifestyle. And I said, okay. I go, well, then tell me about your lifestyle. I was really curious about it. She goes, I make $2,500 a week. And she goes, and unless I, if I'm ever going to quit being a prostitute, you're going to have to find me a job that helps me make that much money. <laughs> I said, well, that's going to be tough to do. She had no education, no college, no nothing. Um, she just gave away her body to men that would pay for it. And I began to ask her a few questions and she always cut me off as soon as I started to probe into her own heart and how devastating that must be. She wouldn't go there with me. But she also began to tell on herself. She made $2,500 a week and she spent $2,500 a week on cocaine and heroin. She drugged herself to the point where she didn't feel the terrible pain that she was experiencing in her life. But I also discovered this. Her mother was a prostitute. She was born from a prostitute. And her grandmother was a prostitute. And her mother was born from a prostitute. Hazel has four children born of prostitute. So this is a lifestyle that has been gone down through the generations. Now, I was struggling at this point, trying to find the breath of God. I thought, where is God in this experience? Because it was like, I'm not going to get her converted. I'm not even going to get her to quit. I don't know what I'm going to do. And I didn't know what I was supposed to do. I was completely at my wit's end, knowing how to be a priest and a friend to a prostitute. And so I just gave up trying. And I just laughed with her. And there was a, a Franciscan friar that worked at the um, shelter. His name was Brother Crispin. And he goes, you know what? Hazel really likes you, and that's kind of dangerous. And I said, well, she's funny. She makes me laugh all the time. I go, I can just talk to her, and she gets me in stitches. She was really funny. And I said, she, he goes, what do you talk about? And she goes, I said, she tells me about her tricks, the guys that she picks up. And I said, I just am amazed. I said, I didn't even know people like that lived in this world. I said, I heard about it, but I never really experienced it. And she makes fun of them. And he goes, she does? And then he started getting curious. I said, yeah, you got to talk to Hazel about her customers someday, because I said, what a crazy lot they are. Well, I just had fun with Hazel. I gave up trying to evangelize her. I gave up trying to talk about God with her. I gave up trying to talk about mercy with her. I just let her entertain me. I mean, she was funny, and I thought she was fun. So 
she comes to me right before I leave, and she said, I hear you're going back to Denver. And I said, yep. And she goes, I want to come in and um, really have a serious time with you. I need some help from you. And I thought, wow, after two years, maybe Hazel's ready to make a conversion in her life. So I said, okay. And I told Brother Crispin, I go, oh, my gosh, the last day in New York I don't want to spend with a prostitute. I said, I just wish Hazel would go away. And he said, well, spend some time with her. She's really going to, she wants to. So she came in to see me, and I said, are we going to have a serious conversation about your lifestyle and religion? And she goes, no. She said, I'm going to take you shopping. <laughs> So I said, oh, that'd be fun. And I thought, I, I gave up to Hazel. And so we went shopping down on 3rd Avenue in Manhattan. And I, you know what? I'm embarrassed to tell you this. I did not wear my Roman collar. I'm an almost 60-year-old man hanging out with a prostitute on 3rd Avenue. Guess what everybody thought I was doing? And it never even entered my mind. I never even thought about it that I was with a prostitute. I was with a young lady that was funny, that made me laugh, that I enjoyed her company, and she helped me pick out some fun clothes that I thought were really funky. So I thought, this is really a fun day. We got back that night, and um, Hazel gave me a big hug, and she started crying and said goodbye to me. And then brother, I came back to Denver. Brother Crispin called me a week later, and he said, what did you and Hazel do that last day in New York? And I said, well, she took me shopping downtown. And he says, oh, oh Father, he goes, did you wear your collar? And I said, no. And he said, thank goodness. He said, everybody down there knows Hazel. And he said, she came in to see me and wanted to go to confession because she said it was the first time in her entire life that a man my age was friends with her just for who she was. I didn't have to do anything. I didn't have to say anything. I didn't have to act like a priest. I just needed to be her friend. That's all she wanted, is somebody that respected her for who she was, even if it was somebody that was completely living a lifestyle I couldn't understand. And I was so grateful to God for the grace of Hazel in my life, because it reminded me that we don't have to try very hard, that sometimes to be a friend means just let it go. Let that person live in sin. Let that person be defeated. Let that person be arrogant. Let that person irritate you. It's okay. They still have within them sanctifying grace. And when we carry within us the breath of God, God will do the work. All we need to do is allow his breath to flow in them and in ourselves. That, to me, takes a huge pressure off of you parents who beat your kids over the head and tell them they have to go to church or they're going to go to hell. Remember, they have the breath of God within them. Let God take care of them. My mom always says, God loves them way more than you do, so maybe you don't need to worry about them so much. Maybe what we need to do is work a little harder just being friends, and night will be over and day will begin. The next kind of grace is not as difficult, actually. The next kind of grace is really fun. It's called actual grace. Have you ever found yourself saying, what a graced moment, or that was such a grace, or what a, an amazing moment, or I felt the presence of God in that. Actual grace is an acknowledgement that God can touch us whenever he wants to in any way he chooses. It's random. 
It's up to God, and it's a little bit up to us. It comes and goes, and we never know when we're going to have one of those graced moments. I love actual grace, though, because I think if we open our eyes, we can begin to see ways to experience it. Let me give you an example. The sun rises every single moment, or day, every day. It has risen for billions of eons. How many sunrises have you seen? How many have you sat and enjoyed with a warm cup of coffee? How many times have you sat with one of those people that carry within them sanctifying grace and enjoyed a sunrise or a sunset? You see, when we begin to do that, we open ourselves to God touching us in the normal routines of our day and our life. How many times do we actually step out on purpose to look at the bighorns when they're covered in snow and stand there in amazement at how spectacular they are? How many times do you take a little drive down a dirt road in the middle of spring and just marvel at how the prairie looks when it's green? How many times have you laid on the lawn on a warm summer night and looked at the stars? Now here's what I think happens. As we grow older, we get a little weathered with life. We get touched by a lot of suffering and a lot of pain. Our body begins to feel it. Our body begins to show it. It's hard to get up for a sunrise. It's hard to stay up for a sunset. And when was the last time those of you over 70 really got down on the lawn on a warm summer night? I told my mom to do that once, and she said I'd never get back up. And that would be grace, wouldn't it? But you know what? I would love to see some of our gray-haired people lying on their front lawn on a warm summer night staring at the skies. I think that would be such a grace for our young people. Have you ever thought about that? They see you in church and they don't care. But what would they do if they saw grandma lying on the lawn on a warm summer night? They would worry to death that you fell. And they'd go over and ask you what you're doing and you could say to them, I'm looking at the stars and trying to figure out why God was not content by just making a hundred of them. Why did he make so many stars that they're beyond measure and they're impossible to count? What was God saying to the world when he did it with such abundance? Go out and sit in a meadow in the bighorns when the wildflowers are blooming and try to count the wildflowers. One would have been beautiful. A half a dozen would have been marvelous. You can't even count them. What was God saying to us? If we do that in our lives, he touches us. And it's amazing grace. And it's actual grace. It's actually God. There are lots of other ways that we experience actual grace. Have you ever had that phone call from the person you've been thinking about? Have you ever found just the right word at the right moment? Has someone said to you, how are you today, when you were feeling like nobody in the world cared? There are no coincidences in life, none whatsoever. It's not just serendipitous. It's not just an accident. 
It's grace. Call it what it is. It's actually a moment when you realize that we're swimming in grace. There are miracles and there is magic in this world. The minute we open our eyes and begin to call it what it is. And sometimes what we do is dismiss it. We say, oh, that was so nice for her to call. Oh, I can't believe he just said that. And it's not an accident. It's God working in our lives. It's a divine influence on the heart. And life begins to be so different when we see actual grace in every moment, in everything. Have you ever remember those stories when you see somebody walking down the sidewalk and the piano falls right behind him? That's grace, don't you think? How many times do you think that happens in our lives? How many times have we driven through an intersection and just missed an accident? Or we forgot something in the house and went in to get it, and because we were two seconds late, we avoided an accident. God is working. Now, we aren't going to always see it. We don't even know it's there. So those moments of actual grace are really important to acknowledge and sometimes to go lay on the lawn and look for. The sun is going to go down every night, and whether you want to see it or not, it's going to still happen. So open your eyes and begin to look at the world with that kind of um, expectation and you'll begin to experience actual grace. What I always think is funny when I talk about this in my classes or in my missions is at the second or third night people come up to me all the time and say, you won't believe what happened, Father. And I say, it's been happening for years. You just never called it what it was. That's what the church teaches. That is actual grace. And finally, tonight, there's one more grace, which, guess what? We only have it as Catholics, and I really like that. If you're not Catholic, come on in, because um, the church teaches us that Jesus designed something for us to experience where we would be guaranteed an experience of grace. We won't always be able to be kind and friendly to a stranger we won't always meet prostitutes we enjoy. We won't always be kind and patient with a homeless person. And so there are moments we will miss the sanctifying grace of another person. We don't always act like saints. Sometimes we're kind of obnoxious, we're argumentative, we're opinionated, and we're kind of ugly people. We don't always show sanctifying grace to the world. It's a little random, isn't it? We don't always lay on the lawn and look at the stars. We don't always appreciate the sunrise or the sunset. We're not always willing to call what it, coincidence what it is. And so actual grace is a little random and happens randomly. But there is a grace that exists in our lives as Catholics that's guaranteed for us. And it's called sacramental grace. Every single time you receive a sacrament in the church, God's promise is, I will have a divine influence on your heart. You will be touched by grace. You will recognize the breath of God within you. You will enrich the breath of God within you. You will show the breath of God within you. You will see the breath of God in others. You will see the miracles that are taking place in your life every moment because you've received the sacraments. Baptism 
is when we are infused with divine grace. By our baptism, we are made children of God. We are brought into his home, his family. Our baptism washes away all the ugly stains of our humanity, which so often rob the world of our sanctifying grace. The moment you were baptized, you were made clean and holy and invited back into the Garden of Eden. And it didn't last very long, did it? And so the church offers us reconciliation, a new baptism for every adult to wash yourself again from all the things that rob the world of our sanctifying grace and our beauty. Sin brings death into the world. And you and I are vessels of death when we are living in sin. We're the ones that cause the pain and suffering of the world when we sin. And so the church says to wash away that sin, to reveal the breath of God to the world, to be a moment of actual grace to others, come and reconcile yourself with me. Come and be forgiven and receive the grace of that sacrament. And then go out into the world and start living again in the Garden of Eden. Confirmation, I'll talk about much more tomorrow night when we are given the power of the Holy Spirit within our own lives, an advocate who stands next to us at the darkest moments and loves us and encourages us, and like my story yesterday, keeps us going so we can make it to the mountaintop. You know, the great tragedy of narcissism is that our young people think they can do it all by themselves, and they're on their own. They don't get any help. But if our young people who are confirmed begin to recognize what God did for them, they have an energy and a, a vitality that gives them the strength to conquer every obstacle in front of them. And shame on parents that don't know how to talk about that with their kids. What you're saying to your kids is, you don't need the Holy Spirit, you don't need an advocate. I raised you well, you can do it all by yourself. Good luck with that. That's like saying to somebody, go hike that mountain, but don't take any water with you. What parent would do that for their child? So I really think it's important tomorrow that you understand what the Holy Spirit offers us through the sanctifying and actual grace of confirmation. The Eucharist, of course. I will talk about the Eucharist a whole lot on Wednesday night as we sit in the presence of the living God in the Eucharist. The grace that's available to us is abundant. He's feeding us by his very presence tonight. I'm nothing, but you're sitting in the presence of Jesus. He's everything, and he's feeding you whether you know it or not. That's grace. There's a power in this room that is unimaginable, and the church promises that because Jesus did it for us. My priesthood is a grace. I find it as a grace in my life, in my family's life, and I hope in your life, as I live my priesthood married to you, the church. My priesthood is a sacrament, and I know that in your priests, you see the very center of the church, what brings the church into existence. There is a grace in our ordination, and it's like the grace in marriage. Your marriages are the building block of society and the world. 
And when grace is present in a sacramental marriage, those marriages can withstand the most painful experiences. They can discover forgiveness and holiness. And a married couple who has the covenant of marriage has the obligation to be a savior to one another. The grace of marriage is critical for our world and for society. And what a terrible, terrible shame it is that our young people are not availing themselves of the sacramental grace of marriage. That is not something that we should just say, ah, it's just the trend, it's just the day. It is a terrible tragedy for our society. It is unraveling the very fabric of families and homes and life when couples live together without taking advantage of sacramental grace in the sacrament of marriage. And I think many married people don't acknowledge what that, that, that grace is. You, don't, you cannot stay married by yourself. Did you know that? The couples that fail in marriage are the ones that don't acknowledge the grace of their sacrament. It's God's grace that makes marriage possible. It's important. The grace of the anointing of the sick. You know, so often people come to be anointed and they, they want to be healed. They want that illness to go away. They want the pain to go away, the suffering to go away. That's not what the anointing of the sick is. What the anointing of the sick is, is an acknowledgement that you have found a friend in your bishop and in the church, that you are surrounded by love, that you are surrounded by the community of believers, and there is such grace in that, that you will never die alone, and you will never suffer alone. I had cancer eight years ago. I was diagnosed with pan pancreatic cancer and kidney cancer, and I had a parish of 6,000 people that I had to tell that I had very serious cancer and I wasn't sure I was going to survive. You know why I survived? By the grace of the anointing of the sick. Because when I was anointed, the entire church, the people of God, loved me and prayed for me. And that's what anointing is. The anointing of the sick that's done at the last moment before grandma dies is really a, a, a sad diminishment of what the sacrament really is. What the sacrament is, is as you live your life and you walk this journey of life and you begin to experience the pain of sickness and suffering and fear and you are anointed with the oil that is blessed at the chrism mass, you know with absolute certainty the grace of the people of God is with you. And that grace is powerful. And finally, the one sacrament I forgot is what? Because <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> Which one did I miss, Pete? <laughs> I got anointing, confession, confirmation, baptism. I think I got them all. I'm going to talk about Eucharist tomorrow, um, Wednesday a whole lot. I talked about priesthood. See, I got them all. That's the grace. That's actual grace that I actually got them all, and I didn't actually forget one. Um, but you know what? There is an eighth sacrament, and I'm going to talk about that one on Wednesday night. Okay, it's the church. So, grace is amazing. Grace is everywhere. It's all around us. Grace comes and goes. We see it sometimes, and we don't see it sometimes. We have to work at it a little bit. But 
it's wonderful when you can begin to live your life and walk this journey open to grace. Now, tomorrow night, I'm going to talk to you about how the Holy Spirit helps us so that we live our lives filled with grace as Mary was. And that Spirit of God, which is given to us, brings with it seven amazing gifts. And only with the gifts of the Holy Spirit does grace ever really come alive in our hearts. So God bless you, and I hope you can make it tomorrow night. Thank you for your um, donations to me. I use a lot of the money that I get in my missions. Um, well, I send a lot to Father Pete. I have to send a little bit to the bishop. I have to pay a little bit in taxes, but sometimes I help homeless people and prostitutes with it. So, um, and and I, my dream is to take a prostitute shopping and buy her something next time, because Hazel bought all the stuff I got. Anyway, you can take that bread tonight. Um, I told everybody on Sunday they could take that loaf of bread. Only one little boy walked up to me. He wanted that loaf of bread really, really bad, but he was terrified of it because, as I said, it's very dangerous to take that loaf of bread, and he wanted to know why. And I said, well, come back Wednesday, and I'll tell you why that bread is dangerous. And he said, with such beauty and innocence, he said, I don't go to church on Wednesdays. <laughs> And then I said, well, maybe your mom and dad will come to church on Wednesday and bring you with them. And he goes, my mom and dad don't go to church on Sundays. <laughs> he says, I go to church with grandma and grandpa. <laughs> and I knew I was losing this one. So I said, do you want to know why that bread is dangerous? And he did. He wanted to know. So I told him and he didn't take it. So um, I want to see if anybody's courageous enough at St. John's to take that loaf of bread. It's very fresh, and it's a good loaf of bread. It's dangerous to take it, but I'll tell you why Wednesday, okay? God bless you. And um, Father Pete and I will be hearing confessions afterwards, and I'll see you tomorrow, okay?